Hey guys, this is Everything Missing or Murdered Podcast. My name is Andrea. Um, I hope everyone's having a great day. Uh, so to, I'm going to be doing another couple parters. Um, I'm going to be doing the Jack the Ripper case um, because it's not solved. And to me, it's still important, even though it's super old and super, I mean, yeah, it's it's well talked about. There's lots of documentaries and you know books and stuff but that doesn't mean it doesn't deserve to still be talked about just because it's been talked about if it's not for you 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 guys don't have to listen I just felt like um I still want to talk about it no matter what even though it's you know you can't arrest anyone obviously in this if it's solved ever um but it's still you know at least people will get people of the the families of the victims if any are still alive any distant way distant relatives obviously um or, you know, anyone that cared about the case gets, you know, like cared about the victims at all, um, will get their answers. And hopefully one day this will be solved. Um, and that's important to me. Every case is important to me. Um, when you get into a long thought out case, uh, case like Jack the Ripper, you have to think, did he do this longer than we think? All that is known about Jack the Ripper is that he had five known victims, but could there have been others? We should take a look at this. I'll just warning, I don't think I'm going to give you guys any, any new information, but I still want to talk about it. There might be a lot more victims than we think. On February 25th, 1888, 38-year-old 30, Annie Millwood lived in White's Row in Spitalfields. She was admitted to Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary because she had stab wounds on her legs and lower part of her abdomen. An article ran that said she was attacked by a man she did not know. No one saw this attack. She did end up dying, but they determined she was not killed because of the stabbing, which was what a... Uh, well, she apparently she died from natural causes. This person did attack her in the lower abdomen area. This was all on, like, her, her own words, though. So she was, she said that. The police originally thought maybe her wounds were self-inflicted. The cuts to the abdomen is why maybe she was a victim, um, but there's no proof of it. So that's, I mean, that's why it's not 100% that she's a victim, but it's worth noting. On March 28, 1888, 39 year old Ada Wilson was at 9 Maidman Street, a man around 30, about 5 foot 6, and had a mustache and a sunburnt kind of face, was outside her place. He was dressed in a dark coat, light colored pants, and a hat. This person threatened to kill Ada if she didn't give what she was owed, or what this person was owed. Apparently, he stabbed her twice in the throat. An upstairs neighbor, Rose Bierman, found Ada Wilson in the hallway. A young man ran out of the front door and disappeared. Ada does survive, and she explains, um, you know, what happened and um, described the person. And she also said she was robbed. She was a prostitute. He used a knife but went for her throat. On April 2nd, 1888, um, in the evening, there was a lodging house at uh, George Street in Spitalfields. Uh, 45-year-old Emma Elizabeth Smith went out. She was um, the lowest classes of, pro of prostitutes. Uh, not sure what that means. I guess she did her business in a corner of any of the squares, balconies, alleyways, passageways, and backyards. Emma would come home with black eyes. She had an issue with alcohol as well. That night, she seemed fine. After midnight on April 3rd, a person who had a room at 18 George Street saw Emma talking with a man who was wearing dark clothes and who had a white scarf. This person was also assaulted by two men, one who had stopped and asked her what the time it was. The other punched her in the mouth. This man Emma was talking to was not one of the men that attacked her. Between 4 and 5 the next morning, Emma came back to 18 George Street. Her face was bleeding, her ears were cut, 
and she was hurt around the lower part of her body. Emma told this person that she was treated badly by some men. They robbed her of all her money. Emma could not describe them, but she did say they were around 19, or at least one of them was. She didn't want to go to the hospital, but eventually did. She was with um, two friends of hers, Margaret Hayes and Annie Lee. They also lived where Emma lived. They walked to a hospital on Whitechapel Road. As they walked, Emma showed them a spot by Taylor's Cocoa Factory and said that that was where she was attacked. The doctor she saw went, um, was Dr. He was like a surgeon. Part of her ear was ripped and the, and some of her organs were ruptured. The doctor thinks, um, they were caused by a blunt instrument. Emma explained that she was walking past a Whitechapel church when some men approached her. She tried to avoid them, but they followed her along Osborne Street where they attacked her and robbed her. There were two or three of them, and um, she explained that one of them was as young as 19. She did not know what they used on her as far as, like, an instrument. Um, she succumbed to her injuries uh, on April 4th, 1888. An inspector, Edmund Reed, who was the head of the CID or the Criminal Investigation Department of Metropolitan Police's H Division, made a report on Emma Smith. Emma, I guess, has a son and a daughter living in Finsbury Park area. She lived at 18 George Street in Spitalfields for at least a year. She would leave, leave around six or seven and come home drunk, which I don't know why that even has to be discussed. But I guess, you know, I guess it's it makes sense because, you know, you need to know what, what their last moments were. On April 2nd, 1888, Emma was seen talking to a man dressed in dark clothes who had a white scarf on at 1215. Uh, she came home between four and five in the morning. At some point, she was attacked and robbed. The police only found out about her attack from the coroner's office. The police in the area never heard or saw anything and the streets were quiet. She would have walked past some police in that area, but she never alerted anyone to what happened. And that makes sense because she didn't even want to go to the hospital. The chief inspector went to, went to an inquest into Emma's death. He talked to all the police constables that night. The coroner was going to forward this case to the prosecutor for further investigation. Witnesses said that they did not, think to report this. I wonder why, because that's really strange. On April 14th, 1888, the Worcestershire Chronicle wrote an article about Emma Smith. She was robbed and attacked and died from her injuries. They wrote about where she stayed, that it was a four-penny lodging house. She hasn't been She hasn't been talking to any friends or family for 10 years. Um, there are lots of women like her in that area alone. The inquest into her death was at the London Hospital where she died on April 7th, 1888. Oh, not April 7th. I cannot speak. April. F yeah. Wow. Because it was um, April 4th when she died. Sorry about that. I don't know why I said April 7th. My... Anyway, um, and everyone agreed that she was murdered. Was Emma Smith a victim of Jack the Ripper? I don't know that. The only reason why I mentioned her and the other ones is because of her injuries that seem sort of similar to the other victims. The police had a file on Emma called the Whitechapel murder. She may or may not be a victim of Jack the Ripper, mainly because she was attacked by men, not one man, still worth mentioning. Jack the Ripper that we know of only killed five people, but there are some mentions that could possibly be by him as well. So that is why I will be mentioning everyone that I could possibly find that was maybe linked to him or her. I will also be visiting the possible suspects as well. Um, and also all the letters that were written. Um, so this is going to be a couple, I think I'm only going to be doing two episodes. So, But as of right now, I just want to focus on the victims. The first three I told you about are not victims of Jack the Ripper. But like I said, it's, a pos it's possible they were. We don't know how long this happened, really. The first known victim of Jack the Ripper is Mary Ann Nichols or Polly. She went by Polly. 
She was born on August 26, 1845 in London. Nichols, her last name is um, her married name. There isn't much about her early life. She did date a boy when she was a teenager named Thomas Drew. They broke up in 1863. Um, Polly then met a man named William Nichols. When Polly was 18, William and um, they both got married on January 16th, 1864 on Fleet Street. There was a plaque on the wall inside the St. Bride's Church where they got married um, with Mary's name when she was born, when she died. It also says, remember her life, not its end, which I love that. Polly and William lived on like a little off of Fleet Street and then eventually moved in with Edward Walker, who is Polly's dad, in Walworth. Polly and William had five kids. Edward John in 1866, which, yes, so her dad's name is Edward too, so I'm, I'm just going to refer to her dad as her dad. Percy George in 1868, Alice Esther in 1870, Elizabeth Sarah in 1877, and Henry Alfred in 1879. In 1875, the family moved to a flat in D Block in the Peabody Buildings on Stamford Street in South uh, Southwark District of South London. Their rent was five shillings and nine pence. Over the years, Polly started to drink, and she drank a lot. When Polly had Henry, a woman helped looking after her, and this woman had an affair with William. That is why she started to drink, according to her. Um, William left Polly to live with this woman, but according to William, it was Polly's drinking that was the issue in their marriage. I get that, but either get your wife some help or leave. Do not cheat. I'll never understand that. Also, according to William, Polly walked out on him a lot. In September 1880, Polly and William Nichols separated, and she moved out of the house. All the kids, except for Edward, lived with uh, William. Edward went to live with Polly's dad. For the time being, I will just... Yeah, yeah, so that's, yeah, and I will just refer to his, her dad as her, her dad, basically, because there's two Edwards. William paid Polly a weekly allowance of five shillings, and she started to live at Lambeth Workhouse. She stayed there until May 31st, 1881. William claimed that Polly was working as a prostitute. She did start living with another man, too, so he stopped paying her the allowance. She went to the police about this, and on her behalf, they demanded that he pay her the money. William said she left him, leaving him with the kids. Plus, she was with another man, so I understand. Um, she did not win the case. By April in 1882, the relationship she had with another man ended, and on the 24th of April, Polly went to live at the Lambeth Workhouse, where she stayed until March 24th, 19, or, excuse me, 1883 and moved back in with her dad. Polly's dad would later speak about how heavy of a drinker she was. She was never sober. On May 21st, they fought over her drinking so much that she ended up moving out and she went back to, guess where? Lambeth Workhouse. In June, she started seeing Thomas Drew. Remember him? She moved in with him at his house. He worked as a blacksmith in South London. They broke up in 1887, um, and Polly sold some of his things so she could buy alcohol. I can see that ending a relationship. She went back to the workhouses and, oh, and she mostly spent time back at Lambeth. In 1887, she became homeless and slept in um, Trafalgar Square. Police Commissioner Charles Warren told them to leave all because there was a lot of homeless people there. Um, if not, they were all arrested and charged. On October 25th, 1887, the ones taken in custody had to stand at Bow Street Police Court, and um, Polly was one of them, supposedly. We don't really know for sure, but yeah, she was one of them. In April 1888, Polly Nichols was back at Lambeth Workhouse. She became friends with a Mary Ann Monk. In May, a matron of... 
the workhouse helped get Polly a job as a domestic servant of the house of Samuel and Sarah Cowdery in Wadsworth, Monsworth. Polly started to work on May 12, 1888. She wrote her dad to say that she was what she was up to. I write to say you will be glad to know that I am settled in my new place and going on all right up to now. My people went out yesterday and have not returned, so I am left in charge. It is grand place inside with trees, gardens, back and front. All has been newly done up. They are teetotalers and religious, so I ought to get on. They are very nice people, and I have not too much to do. I hope you are all right, and the boy has work. So goodbye for the present. Um, she signed it Polly and said to hope he answers soon. And apparently, according to her dad, he said that he wrote a letter back, but he never heard anything from her, which is odd. On July 12th, 1888, a Mrs. Sarah Cowdery sent Polly's dad a postcard saying that Polly stole clothing worth a lot of money. In August of 1888, Polly Nichols went to East End of London and moved into Wilmot's, a female-only common lodging house. She had a room with three other women. One of them was an older woman by the name of Emily Holland. Emily would say that Polly was clean. She kept to herself. She did get pretty drunk a few times. She didn't think Polly liked men that much, which is weird. Um, on October, or excuse me, on August 24th, 1888, Polly left Wilmot's and moved to a place that had females and males live there. It's called the White House. It was on Flower and Dean Street in Spitalfields. On the 26th, it was her 43rd birthday. On August 30th, dark clouds were coming in and after, after a while, there was a thunderstorm. Houses close to the Thames River were flooded. At 9 p.m. that night, a fire broke out at Spirit's Warehouse at the East London Docks. Another fire happens in the Radcliffe Dry Dock. Polly was having a drink at, a frying, at the Frying Pan Club that night. She then walked along Thrall Street to get to Wilmot's. She clearly had a lot to drink, but she was not drunk. She did not have the money to pay for a bed. She was told by the keeper that she couldn't stay, and she had to leave. She was wearing a bonnet which she didn't wear before. She had to make the money to ha have a bed. It's 2 a.m. now. Emily Holland was walking to Wilmot's. She passes St. Mary's Church at 2.30 because the clock on the church chimed. Emily walked on Whitechapel Road to Osborne Street. She saw Polly drunk. According to Emily, Polly claimed to have made a lot of money for buying a bed but spent it on drinking. Emily tried to get her to come with her to Wilmot's and uh, she said she would pay for her bed that night. She didn't want that and apparently was going to go back and make the money on her own. And Emily saw her go on to Whitechapel Road. Polly Nichols was never seen alive again after that. At 3.30 on the morning of August 31st, a Charles Cross left his home on Doveston Street in Bethnal Green to walk to his work, which was at Pickford's by Liverpool Street. He worked as a delivery driver. He was on Brady Street and turned into Bucks Row. He approaches the 1876 board school that took up the western end of Bucks Row. He saw something dark lying in the gateway on the opposite side of the street. He saw that it was a woman who was either no longer alive or drunk. Another man comes up behind him, a man named Robert Paul. They both looked at this woman. She was lying on her back. Her legs are straight and her skirts were right, uh, raised up. Charles touched her and she felt warm, but her hands were cold. He doesn't think she's alive. Robert touched her chest and thought maybe she was still breathing and wants to try and sit her up. Robert and Charles pulled her dress down and walked to their work and you know if they ran into police they would tell them about the victim a police constable by the name of john neal went on bucks row and walked past the board school after charles and robert left he was there a half hour before and saw nothing but then coming back he saw someone lying on the street her throat was cut she was on her back he felt her arm and it was warm her eyes were wide open her bonnet was lying next to her John Neal was another police commissioner at the end of the street. John told him to get Dr. Lulin. Oh, excuse me. 
John Neal saw another. Yeah. Okay. So I think I said that right. Yeah. He saw another police um, constable and told them to go get a Dr. Lulin who was uh, um, a surgeon. Charles and Robert alerted another police constable and went to the scene. And they needed more people and police ambulance. I get this is the 1800s, but that seems to be like a lot of foot traffic on this crime scene. And you'll kind of see that in the other ones when I read the other victims' backstories and stuff. It's it's crazy how many people are involved. Um, Dr. Lulin came around four and examined the victim. Her body was warm, but not her hands. He thinks she has been gone for more than a half an hour. Next to Winthrop Street, there was a horse... Slaughter's property where Harry Tompkins, James Mumford, and Charles Britton were working. They said they didn't hear anything. These three men went to the scene until she was taken to the mortuary. They were interrogated separately by the police. A night night watchman by the name of Patrick Mulshaw worked at a sewer works nearby. He sometimes fell asleep on duty. He was awake between three and four, and he claimed he did not hear or see anything that seemed off. Someone did, however, let him know that someone was murdered down the street. The police tried to figure out who that was, but they never were able to find that out. Could this have been the killer? They noticed the back of the woman's clothes was soaked in blood. Because there wasn't a lot of blood found and no one saw or heard anything, the police think she was probably killed somewhere else and brought there. Maybe that's possible because someone would have heard something, I feel. Unless she was killed very fast. I I don't know. The coroner, however, thinks she was killed there. There was no blood except for the the blood that was in her, you know, coming from out of her neck. Um, maybe her throat was cut when she was lying down is what they, the coroner was thinking. Around 4.30, an inspector was told about what happened. By the time he got there, blood was being washed away and the victim was taken to the mortuary. There was a deep gash that ran all the way down along her abdomen. She was disemboweled. Two people took her clothing and washed her down and threw her clothes away. I just feel like that's a mistake. Now, who was this woman? They took pictures of her and they showed the picture all around. All that was found in her pockets was a comb and a piece of looking glass. They knew she had to be from a lodging house. The inspector I mentioned earlier saw that the skirt of one of of her petticoat had a stencil stamp of Lambeth workhouse and the police went there right away to have someone identify who this woman was. They asked the matron, but she refused. The police found that this victim had a friendship with a Mary Ann monk. Mary was taken to the mortuary on August 31st, 1888. She was identified. Um, well, she identified the victim as Mary Ann Nichols or Polly. The police found Polly's dad on September 1st. He went to the mortuary and identified her as Polly. At the Working Lads Institute on Whitechapel Road, the coroner for Southeast Middlesex had an inquest set up for Marianne Nichols. The first witness was her dad, Edward Walker. He confirmed it was Mary slash Polly. He talks um, about her life as well. The police constable, John talks about finding her in Bucks Row. Dr. Lewin was the one, um, was the last person to speak. He talked about what she endured. Polly's older son, Edward, was able to look at her in the mortuary as well. He works as an engineer at this point, still lived with her, um, with his grandpa, and did not speak to his dad much. William Nichols comes to the mortuary to see Polly, and when he got there, Edward was still there. They did not talk to each other. He concluded that the victim was Polly. Is it normal to have this many people come to claim the victim like that? It's weird. Polly was taken to the undertaker on Hanbury Street on September 6, 1888. It didn't really go well, though, because they were trying to get a ton of people from coming to the funeral, and there was a lot of late arrivals, and it spread everywhere what was happening. Marianne Nichols, or Polly, is buried at the city of, or was buried at the city of London Cemetery. 
It doesn't exist anymore, but there is a memorial plaque to her for remembrance. I think that's amazing. People leave flowers and coins probably because she didn't have the money for bed that night, which is really sad. I just can't imagine. And she will never be forgotten. 47-year-old Annie Chapman lived at Crossingham's Lodging House on Dorset Street. She paid eight pence a night for her double bed. Annie seemed to be friendly with the other people staying there, as well as a deputy keeper by the name of Timothy Donovan. He would say he had a weakness for alcohol. Or, excuse me, she would have a weakness for alcohol. Annie did work with crochet and making and selling artificial flowers, but that didn't pay that well, so she is also a prostitute. Annie had two people she saw a lot, a man known as Harry the Hawker and Ted Stanley. Ted was a retired soldier, um, or, well, he claimed to be, and is also known as a pensioner, but actually he wasn't either one of those things. He was a bricklayer in Whitechapel. Timothy Donovan, the duty keeper, said that um, Ted spent Saturday until Monday with Annie at Crossingham's. Ted also told Timothy to turn Annie away if she came back with other men, which, what? I mean, it's her profession. That's how she makes her money. Um, Ted later said he only saw her a couple of times. So which is it? You know, you were there often or you were hardly there. A month before Annie Chapman was murdered, she had run in a run-in with Eliza Cooper, who also stayed at Crossingham's. According to Eliza, she loaned Annie a bar of soap, which Annie gave to Ted Stanley, who needed to bathe with it. Eliza asked Annie to give her soap back, and Annie gave her some money and told her to just get herself a new soup or soap, which I don't understand sharing a bar of soap. That's really nope. I mean, I understand if it's your family, but some random people. At the Britannia Club on the eastern corner of Dorset Street, there was an incident between Annie and Eliza. Annie slapped Eliza, and she, um, Eliza punched her in the eye and the chest. But this is all according to Eliza, and other witnesses saw this exchange, but it varied, so who really knows what exactly happened? On September 3rd, Annie Chapman met with a friend named Amelia Palmer on Dorset Street. She had a bad bruising on her right temple. Annie showed Amelia her bruise on her chest, too. Amelia saw Annie on the next day by Spitalfields Church and said she looked really pale. Um, Annie might go to the doctor because of it. Um, she didn't eat anything but had a cup of tea. Uh, Amelia gave her money to get some food. <coughs> on September 7th, late in the afternoon, Amelia saw Annie again on Dorset Street. She looked worse and said she was sick. Annie was in the same place when Amelia saw her again sometime later. She was seen at 29 Hanbury Street around 5.30 in the morning with a man. Around 5.45, a witness that lived on 27 Hanbury Street went to his backyard. He heard a woman say no and something fall against the fence. He heard that as he passed a fence that separated his house from 29 Hanbury Street. Before 6 in the morning, a man named John Davis, who lived on Hanbury Street, remember that name? where Marianne Nichols was seen at the mortuary. He came down his stairs and walked to the back door. Two workmen walked on Hanbury Street and found an open door of number 29. Number 29 is where John Davis lived. John asked for help from them. They went to the backyard of number 29 on Hanbury Street. They found the body of Annie Chapman on the ground between the steps and the wooden fence. Her head was turned into the house and her clothes had been tugged up above her waist, showing her stockings. There was a handkerchief tied around her neck. Her face and hands were covered in blood and her hands were raised and bent with the palms towards the upper portion of her body. Maybe that was her trying to fight back or was she posed like that? The three men went off to alert the police. One of the workmen was a man named James Kent. He went to get a drink because I just saw a murder victim. The other man was Henry Holland. Um, he went up to Commercial Street as, and then crossed to Spitalfields Market where he found a constable. He told the constable about the woman he found, but apparently it was against procedure to leave where he was, which is weird. Any cop tells me that I would freak out. 
Henry even gave a complaint to the Commercial Street Police, but apparently that officer was correct in what he did, which is crazy to me. Couldn't he, like, try to alert someone to go with? I don't know. John Davis was lucky in finding somebody. And Inspector Joseph Chandler, there was a ton of people around the victim when he got there, which is a mess. He asked for a more reinforcements. Then he wanted a Dr. George Phillips, who was the police surgeon, to come to the crime scene. George said that the victim's left arm was placed across her left breast. Her legs were drawn up, her feet on the ground, and her knees turned outwards. Her face was swollen and turned to the right. This woman's throat was cut badly. Her womb was cut out and it's missing. I don't understand why anyone would do that. Dr. George Phillips had her moved to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary on Eagle Street on Old Montague Street. Remember when they washed Polly Nichols' body? Well, the inspector made it clear he did not want this victim washed yet either until the doctor had at least been there to fully examine her. But two nurses took her clothes off and washed her. How does this happen a second time in a second murder? This murder brought up the possibility of whoever did this was a professional or was a doctor of some kind or butcher. On September 14th, Annie was picked up and taken to the city of London Cemetery and laid to rest. So since there's a second murder, we should find a suspect. A man was arrested. Um, He carried a knife and he treated sex workers really bad. A witness picked this man out of a lineup even he was, but he was released. Another suspicious looking person was arrested. One of his hands had a bite mark. This man had it um, said it came from a woman who he tried to help in Whitechapel on September 8th. He had some blood on his clothes too. Nobody could identify him. And nothing came of this. A week after Annie Chapman's murder, the police got a letter in red ink. It says, Dear Boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they took so look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me a real fits. I have some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit though. I hope. It was signed yours truly, Jack the Ripper. This letter has never been proven to be real. Elizabeth Stride cleaned rooms at a lodging house at number 32 Flower and Dean Street where she lived off and on for six years. The deputy keeper's name was Elizabeth Tanner. She paid her sixpence for the chores and by Six, Elizabeth was drinking at the Queen's Head pub on Fashion and Commercial Streets. By seven, she went back to the lodging house, according to another resident there, Charles Preston. She dressed as she was ready to go out, kind of dress. And then she left again at at around 7.30. This night we speak of was September 30th, 1888. It was pouring rain that night. She was seen at 11, sheltering in the doorway of a bricklayer's arms on Settle Street. She was with a man who was about 5'5". He had black mustache and was wearing a black suit with a billycock hat, which I had to Google what that was, and it is a bowler hat. It is a hard felt hat with a rounded crown. It was created by the London hat maker Thomas and William Bowler in 1849. It was traditionally worn with semi-formal and informal attire. The witnesses noticed that they were very affectionate. They eventually saw them leave towards Commercial Road. At around 11.45 on September 30th, uh, William Marshall, who lived on 64 Burner Street, was outside his place of living and saw a man and a woman outside number 63. They were sober and they kissed. They moved off going towards um, Dutefield's yard. William described the man as middle-aged and stout, seemed like he was a clerk, not sure what that means. He was around five foot six and had no facial hair. He wore a black coat, dark pants, and a round cap that looked like a sailor hat. 
1230 the next day, a police constable, Williams, um, William Smith, went on Burner Street and saw a man and a woman on the other side of Duffield's yard where the victim was found. This man seemed to be in his late 20s with dark complexion and a mustache. He was five foot seven and a dark, had a dark coat on and a deerstalker hat. This is a close-fitting hat with a visor at the front and the back with ear flaps that may be worn up or down. I call it the Sherlock Holmes hat because it looks very similar. William Smith identified the woman as Elizabeth Stride. She had a flower pin to her coat. There was an international working men's educational club on Burner Street. A member of, by the name of Morris Eagle left the club around 12 to walk a lady home. He went back to the club later. He saw the door locked, so he went to get to the gates of Duffield's yard and enter the club through the back door. He saw nothing on the ground as he went. He thinks he would have noticed if anyone was there. A man named Israel Schwartz, he went on to Burner Street around 1240 and saw a man walking before, walking before him. The man stopped to talk to a woman who was in the gateway of Duffield's yard. Israel did not speak English, so he had to give his statement with an interpreter. According to Israel Schwartz, the person seen with Elizabeth Stride was 5'5", 30 years old, dark hair, light skinned, and had a small mustache. He had broad shoulders as well and seemed drunk. This man tried to pull the woman into the street but spun her and threw her onto the footway. She screamed a few times. Was this a domestic thing? Um, Israel tried not to get involved. There was another person there smoking a pipe. The man that was with the girl talked to the second man and said Lipsky. The second man followed Israel. So it seems like they might have known each other. Israel ran, which is understandable, and got away. The second person that chased him was in his 30s, about 5 foot 11, light brown hair and a brown mustache, and wore a dark coat with a hard felt hat. Elizabeth was found on October 19th, or excuse me, Not October 19th, that wouldn't make sense. Um, September 30th um, at 1 in the morning. Israel's sighting would mean that she was killed probably between 12.45 and 1 in the morning. So that's like a 15-minute window. That's insane. Um, a man named Louis, uh, who was a steward of the International Working Men's Educational Club, came back to Dupfield's yard at 1 in the morning from Westo Hill Market by Crystal Palace. He was selling jewelry that day. Lewis saw something dark on the ground close to the wall of the club. It was a woman. He goes in and asks for help in the yard. They saw that her throat was cut. Everyone went to go find a police officer to alert them of this. Lewis ran in to a police constable named Edward Spooner. Oh, and around the victim, there were several people. Again, so much foot traffic. Edward Spooner said that the cut on her throat was wide and she was a little warm still. There was blood that went from her throat to the door of the club. Was she killed there, do we think? Or did the killer leave a trail of blood to the club and cleaned up inside, maybe? They found some breath mints in her hand. Now, remember, I said that the club members went to get help. Two more found police constables, um, Henry Lamb. Henry Lamb grabbed another policeman named Edward Collins, and they go back to Dutfield's yard. The crowd is bigger now, at least 20 people. Again, so much foot traffic. Um, Edward Collins wants a Dr. Frederick Blackwell who lived nearby to examine the victim. When he gets there, he thinks she has been gone for 20 to 30 minutes. The victim was wearing a scarf and it was pulled tight on her neck. So the theory is that the killer had her by the back of her scarf and pulled her backwards on the ground. We don't know when exactly her throat was cut. Edward Lamb got the gates closed in Dutfield's yard, which is good because there's so many people and they need to like not let any more people in. Um, not to mention they had reinforcements. So not only was the police there, but there was a bunch of bystanders. They searched the club and looked at hands and clothes for any blood. They can, um, they also canvassed the neighborhood. A man named Edmund Reed is an inspector. Oh, and Dr. Frederick had a Dr. George Phillips with him. Do you guys remember him? He was the doctor who examined Annie Chapman. They noticed that her head was almost um, cut off. 
Everyone was questioned. The victim was taken to St. George Mortuary on Cable Street. They didn't know this was the same person who killed Annie and Polly, mainly because she wasn't cut open like the other two. But here's why they think she is a victim of this person. They found another woman not too long after Elizabeth Strived was found. A woman named Catherine Eddowes was released from Bishop's Gate Police Station in the city of London. Catherine was entertaining people outside 29 Aldgate High Street, pretending to be a fire engine. She was drunk as well. After that, she fell asleep on the ground. A policeman asked if anyone knew who she was. No one did, so he took her to the police station. She wouldn't tell her name either. She stayed in a cell to sober up. At 12, you could hear her singing for some reason. She asked when she could go, but she um, still seemed off, so they wouldn't let her. But before 1 in the morning, they did tell her she could go. They saw her go to Houndstitch Street. It's also a short walk to... Um, it's a short walk to Mitre Square. Mitre Square was inside the City of London boundary. It's a square that was surrounded by three warehouses. There were some houses that no one lived in and a shop. There was two houses in the distance that had a policeman named Richard Pierce um, living in one as well. There were three main streets that molded into the square. Mitre Street, Aldgate High Street, and Duke's Place. There was a synagogue and a St. Batoff Church on Aldgate High Street where there was also butcher shops and slaughterhouses. At 1.30 in the morning, a police constable walks through the southeast corner that brings him through Mitre Square. He would do this every few minutes, so you know maybe 10 to 15 minutes he would come back around and check again. Um, he said it was quiet that night and no one could hide in the square. He goes through Aldgate High Street. A few minutes after, three men, Harry Harris, uh, Joseph Levi, and Joseph Lond, left the Imperial Club on Duke Street and see a man and a woman talking together. She was touching the man's chest. Joseph Levi noticed that the man was a few inches taller than the woman. He didn't get a better description than that because he thought, it, you know, it's really late at night. Why are they out so late? That kind of thing. Joseph Lon said that the man he looked said that the man looked like a sailor and seemed about thirty years old. He was five foot nine and a medium build. He had a mustache. He also wore a reddish neckerchief and a gray jacket and gray cap. The police officer that goes through the square every um, few minutes, like I said, at like ten to fifteen minutes, uh, comes back on Mitre Street and into Mitre Square. A woman was on her back and her clothes were over her waist. He grabs a night watchman from one of the warehouses for some help. The night watchman ran down Mitre Street to Aldgate to get more reinforcements. One person grabbed a doctor that um, from his house, not too far from the square, and they were at the scene by two in the morning. Her throat was cut. The doctor thinks the killer only had a basic knowledge of anatomy, which is odd because others have said otherwise. And on the other victims, it seemed like it was very professional, but this one... They claim it wasn't seemed that professionally done. An inspector comes and wants people canvassing the neighborhood. The night watchman is shocked with the crime being as close it is, is uh, that it was because he didn't hear a thing. And the killer had a short time window. So yeah, it had to have been pretty fast. Um, they were able to identify the victim because remember, she spent time in jail at the police station and she was wearing the same clothes. So yes, it is Catherine Eddowes. So this person murdered twice in less than an hour, and the area had a lot of police in it. And I mean a lot. They think this person might be local. I don't know how they managed to get away because you would think they would have been covered in blood at some point if they killed two people in an hour, not even an hour. There were also three detectives out and about trying to find the killer. They were dressed in plain clothes. Daniel Hulse, one of the detectives, went towards... Middlesex Street, then turned to Wentworth Street, and he questioned some people but let them go. He goes through Galston Street, which is a short distance from Mitre Square, but nothing. Saw nothing. Catherine was taken to a mortuary on Golden Lane. A piece of her clothing was taken. She was wearing an apron, so that a piece of that was taken. Not really sure why. 
Around three in the morning, a police constable was walking on Goldston Street where Daniel went through earlier. He went past a doorway um, leading into the Wentworth model dwellings. He found a portion of an apron on the floor. It had blood on it. Now hear me out. Daniel went by that spot. Saw nothing. This policeman went by it earlier, too, and did not see anything. So when did this piece of apron get there? This evidence shows where the killer might have went. To their home or wherever to hide out, I guess. They think towards the east end of London. It's odd, though. Why did this person wait in the area so long if what Daniel and the other policemen said, they didn't see anything? Why would they wait and then drop something? That's just random. One of the biggest questions I have um, that, unfortunately, we probably will never know the answer to. There was also some writing on the wall where the apron was found in chalk. Now, it's it's geared towards the Jewish community because um, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the area. The Wentworth model dwellings was occupied by a lot of the Jewish community in the area. So the police were, you know, debating if they should erase this or not because it could possibly be a clue um, or evidence or whatever you want to whatever you want to say. There was two police forces involved in this case, the Metropolitan and the city police. They argued about erasing the words because, like I said, it's a potential clue in their eyes. I have no idea how it could possibly be connected, um, but I guess anything's possible. A Sir Charles Warren, who was the leader of the Metropolitan Police and um, the the doorway was in their territory. He did the right, um, he did the, he told them to have the words erased because we don't even know how it connects or e if it even connects and it, and it's harmful what the person wrote about. Some people who saw the writing said it looked faded that, so who really knows? But why would he, why would, oh, let's say the killer wrote that. Why would he wait as long as he did then write a message on the wall? I mean, it's very, it, it like I said, there's a lot of um, police in the area, so why would he risk that? That doesn't even make sense. Catherine Eddowes was brought to the cemetery in the city of London. Um, and there is no, like, they they have no idea exactly where her grave is now. So there is a plaque for her in remembrance. So I, I love that. I just think that's so great. And that's, yeah, that's messed up. <coughs> Now, um, Catherine is the third victim, or fourth victim. So now we're moving on to the final victim. 25-year-old Mary Kelly was usually well-dressed, and she was liked. She would drink a lot, though. Mary rented a room at Miller's Court. It is off of Dorset Street in Spitalfield. She lived with a man named Joseph Barnett. He didn't work, though, so Mary became a prostitute. They fought about it, too. At the end of October, Mary had a woman, Julia, stay with them, and Joseph moves out because of it. Uh, Maria Harvey stayed with Mary Kelly in her room before her murder. She went to New Court also on Dorset Street. Sorry. My... But spent an afternoon with Mary in her room. Around 7, Joseph came and Maria left. She left a bonnet, an overcoat, some shirts, and a girl's coat. I don't know why she left all that, but that's what was left. I guess Joseph and Mary were still close. When he saw her, that was the last time he saw her alive. He also said there was a woman with him in the room, and she left first. I don't think he meant Maria because he knew Maria and would have identified her. And he said this woman lived in Miller's Court, and Maria did not live in Miller's Court. Joseph said he was with Mary for an hour and then he left to his own lodging around 1230 and went to bed. At around four in the morning on November 9th, some neighbors thought they heard a yell or a cry and nobody did anything about it. So, you know, they just ignored it. Before 11 the next day, Mary Kelly's landlord was coming to collect her rent. He knocked on the door, but there was no answer. Mary had a broken window and he looked into her room. There was a lot of blood seen in that room. The wall behind her bed had blood on it. There was some, what looked like human flesh on the table by the bed. And there was somebody no longer alive on the bed. The landlord had come 
some kind of assistant, and the assistant went to the Commercial Street Police Station to report the crime. Two inspectors looked through the window. Inspector, um, One of the inspectors saw Mary's remains on the bed. Her head was turned to the window. Her, um, This is going to be graphic, so I apologize. Her face was mutilated. Joseph Barnett did identify her, but the only way he could identify her was by her eyes and her ears. That is how badly she was mutilated. A Dr. Thomas Bond examined her. She was naked in the middle of the bed. Her shoulders were flat, but the rest of her was to the left side. Her head was turned, like I said, um, and her legs were wide apart. The surface of the abdomen and thighs were removed. Um, so I'm assuming that's what the flesh was on the side of the, the bedstand. Um, her abdominal cavity was removed. Her uh, breasts were cut off. Her arms were mutilated. The tissues of her neck were cut to the bone. I just, that's horrific. It's, I apologize. It's really messed up. But I, I wonder why this one was destroyed so much. I mean, it's just really crazy to me. Her uterus and kidney and one of her breasts was under, found under her head. The other one was under her feet. Her liver was also by her feet, um, her intestines by her right side, and the spleen on the left side of the body. This is one of the most brutal deaths I've ever read about, and I don't really understand why someone would kill somebody like that. I just don't get it. Um, so there is no real way to know what happened to Mary after Joseph left. A witness said they saw her drunk with another person around 11. A neighbor said they saw her with a short man in his 30s. And someone else said Mary was singing in the early morning. Uh, there is no way to know. Um, so, yeah. Um, I'm going to stop here. Um, that was the last of the main victims that we know for sure are Jack the Ripper victims. Um, and then I'm going to be recording tomorrow as well for the part two. And I believe part two is, is going to be it. I think I can do this all in two parts. Um, there is a lot of information, um, about this case. So if you, you know, you don't want to wait for that, you can, um, look it up or, uh, you know, there's plenty of documentaries. I just think it's important to talk about. Um, it's, really messed up what happened and I don't want the victims to be forgotten. So I'm going to talk about everything I can. So all the victims plus the ones that could possibly be connected. I already did the first three that seemed like they could be Jack the Ripper victims. And then I'll list the other ones. And then I will also be reading the letters and talking about the suspects that were named. Um, thank you guys so much for listening and I will talk to you later.